Welcome to episode four, part two of the Keeping It Covered podcast with Dr. Brian Moritz. If you missed part one of the podcast, be sure to go back and listen as Brian talks about his experience as an undergraduate student at St. Bonaventure University, his time in the journalism industry, and why he decided to end up going back to Syracuse University just a couple years ago for his master's degree. Now, this episode focuses on a variety of topics, including women in sport, Brian's PhD that he received from Syracuse University, as well as what he is doing now at St. Bonaventure University in their new Masters of Journalism program. Enjoy. So when you were at Syracuse, obviously with your PhD, you have to create a dissertation. I do. And your dissertation was focused on how journalists are expected to perform digital and traditional work at the same time, which creates tension. Yes. What kind of tension is that? Did you actually read my dissertation? I did. Jesus, I'm sorry. Not all of it. Oh, thank God. Oh. I did kind of like a spark notes idea. So I was, <laughs> I was, I was trying, I was trying to read it here and there. Oh, but that's like 237 pages, and that was that's a whole other story. Anyway, the tension. Sure. So this is from interviews I conducted in 2013 and 2014. So I don't know how much it's changed a little bit, but it's kind of a foundational thing. So the tension that I describe in the dissertation in sports journalism. I liken it to, and I actually published an article in the International Journal of Sports Communication on this. It's the tension between the story and the stream, is how I put it. So the traditional kind of print-centric idea of, of sports journalism is you're rooting for the story, right? You've heard that expression. We've probably used that expression in class, right? You don't root for teams. You don't root for players. You root for the story. And the story was the focus of your day. So when we talked about my coverage of the Bonaventure scandal, you notice it was all about that long story I wrote. And that was the focus of the day's work. Everything was around that story that's going in the newspaper or even on the website at the end of the day. The shift and the tension has moved it to we're much more of a stream of information, right? It's not about the story you write. It's about posting to Twitter. It's about updating kind of a running story on the website or on a blog. Now it's just on the website. And so that's kind of like the central change of the job is now it's not. So I was taught gather, sort, report. or taught that in JMC 106 by Dr. Steve Kosky. And uh, that was like the reporting model. You do all your interviews, you do your reporting, you sort it, and then you write. But now it's gather, report, then sort. So you get the information, you publish it because that's what the audience wants, right? That's what we sitting here and looking at our respective computers, after we're done with this podcast, we're gonna look up Twitter, we're gonna see what's going on with the baseball talks, we're gonna see what's going on with Ukraine, and we're not looking for a story about it, we're looking for, okay, what's the latest nugget? That's how we consume news, and so that's the fundamental change in how we do it. It's not gathering for a story anymore and thinking and conceptualizing our work as a story it's feeding this stream of information. It's you know publishing it as we know it, as we confirm it, and then sorting it out later. And so that's one of the kind of the fundamental tensions that the digital and social age have brought to sports journalism and journalism as a whole, really. You know, kind of you can use sports as a microcosm of that. Now I will say that I think what's interesting is that it's kind of when I researched that, you know, in 2013, 2014. It was still kind of a new idea, and now we've kind of settled. It's eight years now. And so it's kind of settled into that's how journalism is right now, right? That's just how it's practiced. And I think we as an industry and, and, and journalists kind of have an understanding of that. 
um, and that's the general how things are done now. And it's interesting to think that in a way it's fundamentally changed how we do journalism, but in a way it hasn't. Like the practices are still the same. We're still looking for the same types of information. We're still using the same sources, the same voices, all of that. It's just instead of waiting to six o'clock to file the story to our editor, we're filing it kind of as we go on Twitter and online and then kind of putting it together at the end of the day. When 2014 rolls around, you graduate from Syracuse and then you jump right into teaching at SUNY Oswego. And when it comes to public school kind of education for journalism, being somebody who graduated from a public school at Brockport, they sometimes get a bad rap that they're a public school, they're not private and all that kind of stuff. So when you were there at SUNY Oswego, which has one of the best public school educations for journalism, especially on their, you know, TV and radio side. Do you feel that those public schools kind of get a bad rap for not having a strong enough program? Oh, God, 1,000%. Miss me with that whole public school nonsense. I will put the best students that I had at Oswego up against the best students that I saw at Newhouse any day of the week and twice on Sunday, and there's no difference. And that's no knock on the SU students. I had some great students at Newhouse, but I had phenomenal students at Oswego. And I don't want to just quantify it as, like, the best students versus the best students. I mean, given, you know, at, at Oswego, and I, I believe Brockport's the same way, you know, we had so many first-generation students. We had so many students of color, students from Latino backgrounds, from Asian backgrounds, you know, historically underserved populations. And to see them in class, to be able to teach them is critical and so important and such, I think, a service to journalism and just to everybody. And so I am not here for any kind of public school snobbery looking down on. I mean, I think the students at any SUNY school can stand up to any kind of private school education. And yeah, I mean, I think, you know, Oswego has such a, you know, especially the broadcast side on Oswego, you know, I'm proud of the journalism students and I'm proud of the journalism department there, but the radio TV, the kind of broadcast department and the broadcast part of the school there is, I mean, just absolutely stellar. And when I left, they're in the middle of just starting plans to redo one of the buildings on campus as a central home for the whole school of communication, media, and the arts. But really, the broadcast department is the central part of that. And to see that school get showcased, those students get showcased, and that faculty there get showcased, is just it brings me so much joy that they're going to get what they deserve in terms of kind of notoriety, in terms of facilities and attention. I mean, Al Roker rocking the Oswego stuff. And he's such a great alum and so supportive of that department and that school. It's a great program there. I, again, no bad words to say. Now you were there for Oswego for a couple years and being a professor there, you got to experience the SUNYAC rivalry um, between Brockport, Oswego, Cortland, and Geneseo. Those are usually the top four teams you think of. So compared to your experience as a student at St. Bonaventure with now being a professor there at Oswego, what was the athletic experience like knowing that those four teams have one of the biggest rivalries when it comes to Division Three sports? So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to push back on that a little bit because from the Oswego perspective, the rivalry is Plattsburgh. Not to discount your experience and that, but like I didn't go to many games. I live an hour and a half from campus and my daughter was young. So we went to like one or two hockey games maybe in total my time there. And I followed it as best I could. But 
the rivalry that mattered on campus to students and to the athletes and to the student media was always Plattsburgh. I mean, Oswego Plattsburgh, that was it. I mean, you know, I can't think of a current Bonaventure rivalry that is that tight. Maybe VCU, given how they are, but this is like little three level, like Bonacanisius Niagara back in the day level of animosity and, and hating on the rival. But I love that. I would tell people when I was at Oswego, like, nobody's going to match Bonaventure for school spirit among students and alum, right? Like, we're a total cult. Like, we've accepted that. But that pride that students and alumni had in Oswego, it was deep. And, you know, hockey night in Oswego is every bit what a basketball night in Olean is. And the love that that community has for that team, it's real. It was very cool to even on the periphery see that and to be a part of that. And that Suniac rival, I remember from when I covered it in Binghamton. Binghamton wasn't in the Suniac, but a lot of our high school athletes went to all the Suniac schools. And yeah, man, that Suniac rivalry, that Suniac is no joke, my friends. If you're listening to this and don't know, now you know. And I'm sure a lot of it has to do with like the location of the schools, but also like they get a lot of high school athletes from New York State. So I'm sure you're playing against guys and girls that you played against in high school that you saw in sectionals or states or the AAU circuit. I mean, this is, you know, the Suniac is real, man. So, Brian, we'll jump ahead now to August 2021, and uh, you return to St. Bonaventure University. And you and a bunch of other alumni that have had success in the industry, you guys jump together and say, you know what, we're going to put together a master's program for digital and sports journalism. So for you specifically, why did you end up returning to your alma mater to help head that program? It's home. I mean, that was, so I have to give, the program was created by Aaron Chimble, or Dean, the Jandoli School. And uh, he worked with the sports journalism alumni board to create this. And it's part of a, a larger strategy the university has had to really build its online programs and its online master's programs. You know, that's financially important for the university. It's the next step. So they created this program. And it's funny, I was not on the job market. I had just gotten tenure at Oswego, just gotten promoted to associate professor. I was working at home. It was, you know, fall of 2020. So it was, I don't want to say still during COVID because COVID's still going on, but it was still kind of in the heat of it. And I got a call from Aaron and we had met and, you know, he had said, do you ever want to come back? Would you ever be interested in coming back in the future? And I'm like, yeah, I'm always interested in talking to somebody. And he calls me and he starts talking about this master's program. And he's like, would you be interested in being the director? And I said, sure. So I applied for the job. And again, I wasn't on the market. I wasn't looking to leave. I was happy at Oswego. But when your alma mater, your beloved alma mater is creating a program in the two subject areas that you teach and research and wants you to run it remotely, you listen. And so I, I came back. I applied for the job. I had the interviews. And, you know, one Denny Wilkins, who's one of the undergraduate professors, was on the search committee. And Denny, I was his first student. I was in his very first class that he taught at Bonaventure in 1996. And he likes to say that he's been trying to get me back there for 20 years. And he finally succeeded. And, you know, everything fell into place. I hesitate to use the word dream job, but it's, it's as close to a dream job as it gets. You know, I get to teach at Bonaventure. That is... I don't want to say it's everything I've always wanted, but I could not ask for a better opportunity to come to build a program. And when you look at the advisory board, I mean, we've already talked about Rachel Axon and Tim Bontemps, who I worked with. Chris LaPlaca, who spoke to my freshman year class that I referenced. He spoke to that when I was there. 
Mike Vaccaro, Adrian Wojnarowski, I mean, you all know them as media stars. They've been my mentors for 25 years and helped me in every step of my career. And, you know, it's a total full circle moment. It really is. And the opportunity worked out. The timing was great. The fact that it's a remote position, you know, we weren't looking to leave our home in Fairport. We're happy here. We have a life here. I wasn't going to move. I don't have to move. I can teach remotely and I can come to campus as needed, but I don't have to be there every day. I don't have to uproot my family and move to the Southern Tier. You know, it was when I met with the people at Oswego to tell them about the offer, they gainfully tried to get me to stay, but I think they even knew. They heard, like, you don't turn down an opportunity like this. This is this is too good. And I come back to what I said. It's home. Like, I get to teach at home. I get to teach at Bonaventure. That's perfect. I could not have mapped out my career in 1995 any more full circle or better than to be back here teaching right now. Now, this program, obviously, with, you know, me being in it and a bunch of other students being in it. We're kind of the guinea pigs when it comes to this program. So what do you believe that this program potentially has to offer for future students who want to continue their uh, graduate degrees? Like I said earlier, it's a chance to get reps. It's a chance to learn. It's a chance to practice. It's a chance to make mistakes and work on your skills, not in a trial by fire situation, but in a way where you can get good feedback how to edit a video, but not feel like, oh God, it's going out there to all of our audience and I don't know what I'm doing. You get to practice that. I think that it's very valuable potentially for students who, let's say, to use an Oswego example, let's say you were a broadcast major at Oswego and you kind of leaned on the technical side and the production aspect of it, but you don't, you didn't really get the journalism experience, like the what we would call in past lifetimes, the print experience. This gives you a chance to kind of like, you know, boot camp that and learn those skills. So I think that that's a huge, you know, part of it. I think that if you're look, yeah, someone's looking for, you know, we have some mid-career students in here. I think it's it's wide ranging, and you know, you say you guys are the guinea pigs, but you are. You know, we're learning on this as we go, as a school and as a university and as a program, kind of looking what our students needs, who's coming, and, and you know, we have the master classes too. So you know, you get to interact with SBU alumni, and we're going to be bringing in non-alums as well in the future to talk. To hear someone like Woj talk about reporting, to hear someone like Vac talk about column writing, that's invaluable. And you know, I know I'm in full pitch mode, but it's remote. You don't have to move to Syracuse. You don't have to move to Bonaventure. You know, you don't have to quit your job to do this. It's an 18-month, you know, program that's designed for someone who's working full time. And I think that's valuable. You know, I think coming out of the kind of shutdown parts of the pandemic and kind of the lockdown that we were in, I think that it opened up a lot of opportunities and I think it opened up the importance and it showed me the potential of online education. And, you know, I think that, again, that's a whole other discussion for a whole other time, but, you know, online education, not as a substitute for in-person, but as its own thing that stands on its own and it has its own best practices. And I think that there's a hunger for that. And I think that we're able to provide students who are interested with that opportunity. And I'm excited about that. And, you know, I'm excited to build this program. I'm excited to make this program into something that's valuable to people and that people can, you know, look back on and say that was worth my time and money. Because they are choosing to be here. I think that that's a big part of it. You know, sorry to interrupt, but when you're teaching undergrad, like, 
you don't have to go to college, but you have to go to college, right? You know, it's kind of the way it's viewed, right? And you get students of all levels and of all interest in your classes. You get the hardcore people who you know are going to be great journalists, and you got the people who are there because they needed an elective and your class was open that time. When you're in a graduate program, especially an online program, you're all here because you want to be here. You're not here because you have to be. You're not here because your parents made you. You're not here because this is what you're supposed to do. You're here because you want to be here. You want to be studying journalism. And that's cool for me as a course designer and as an instructor to kind of have this group of people who are like, y'all are engaged. Y'all are here because you want to be. All right, let's get down to it, and we can have some fun with this. I always try to find something that people may not know about each guest. And for you personally, you're the member of the Fairport School Board. So kind of explain now, obviously, I don't want this to turn into like your speech to hopefully continue your candidacy for that school board, but just kind of explain what your vision for the Fairport Central School District is hopefully going to look like if you continue Uh. to be on the school board. So yes, I was appointed to the school board in October to fill an unexpired term. And my vision, oh man, that's a good, good question. I mean, I believe in public education, man. I was just talking about it. I believe in giving every student in our community the chance to succeed however they define success. Just giving students opportunities. I love that. You know, I'm kind of shaping this as I talk here, but like getting them after school activities, introducing them to theater, introducing them to books in the library, introducing them to sports that they might not have heard of. I think school is, it's funny, right? So my daughter is now in sixth grade in Fairport schools. And like, they got like time off of school two years ago, right? And normally like, oh my God, we don't have to go to school. It's the best thing ever. Kids missed it, man. They missed how important being in school and being with their teachers and that, and those relationships that they build with their friends and all the drama that goes along with that, the good and the bad. And I think, you know, kind of seeing that importance of school It's such a fundamentally important thing. Education is so fundamentally important to having the next generation be better than we are and to kind of build something. And I look at my daughter and I look at her classmates and how passionate they are about social justice, how passionate they are about equal rights and, you know, whether it's LGBTQ rights, whether it's, you know, racial inequality or climate change and about climate, you know, Uh, sustainability and all of that stuff. And how can I not want to be a part of that? You know, I want to do everything I can as someone on the board that helps support them and and kind of gives them the framework, the tools and everything like, you know, to quote Hamilton, you're going to blow us all away. And the best that we can do is kind of like help set that foundation for you guys to do that. When it comes to, you know, this sticking to sports mantra, when it comes to being journalists, you're on the side that a lot of people, including myself, agree with, and that journalists should not just stick to sports. They should cover movements such as the Black Lives Matter movement and the four major sports. Um, And now there's a new one coming out with Michaela Schifrin and her struggles at the recent Winter Olympics and how COVID really knocked her down. And, you know, her mental health was very, I wouldn't say stricken, but she, she didn't feel like herself. And she still raced anyway. She didn't do as well as she hoped. And everybody's like, well, you know, she should just retire and, you know, she's done. But why do you believe journalists have swung away from just the sticking to sports method and have decided to cover ideas such as mental health as well as social movements like Black Lives Matter? Okay, so first of all, 
April 15th, every baseball player wears the same number, right? What number do they wear? 42. Why do they wear 42? This is Jackie Robinson. What did Jackie Robinson do? Broke the color barrier in professional baseball. So miss me with anybody who says sports writers should stick to sports, right? Based on that, that was one of the single most important moments in the entire civil rights era of the 20th century of the United States. Baseball celebrates it every year, so miss me with that we should write about politics. Politics and sports have always been deeply intertwined. And if you think it hasn't, you're in a position of extreme privilege and need to check that. Anyway. Why do I think we've been writing about it more? I think the explosion of digital and social media has brought new voices to the forefront. I think the growing diversity within the industry has brought voices that aren't straight white dudes and that have brought new perspectives on it. And I think that athletes are newly empowered by what they're seeing. So I think that with the Black Lives Matter movement and Trayvon Martin, which I believe was 10 years ago as we're recording this, it was about 10 years ago that he was murdered. I think that in reading about it and talking to some athletes about it or former athletes about it, that was a moment. Like that was really a moment, I think, for this movement and for a lot of athletes to kind of realize and that they have a platform and that this is bigger than making money and this is something that they stand for. And I think that that empowered athlete is good. I think that that brings new voices to the table. And that's the importance, as we've talked in our classes, about diversity in sports media and diversity in coverage. It's hearing these different perspectives. Yes, it is challenging your worldview. It is getting you to, to think about something a little bit differently. And that's a good thing. We should want to do that. And, you know, in terms of the mental health stuff in sports, I think that that's a very new thing. And I'm very interested to see where this goes. You know, I've been someone who I've tried to advocate openly for mental health. You know, I have an anxiety disorder. I take medication for it. I'm not shy about talking about it. And seeing the coverage of athletes and their mental health in the past year, especially you had Naomi Osaka, you had Simone Biles. It's fascinating to kind of see because that does fly in the face of a lot of how we've thought about sports and covered sports. You know, it's very much been the suck it up. We, we praise you for playing hurt. And these athletes are saying, no, I, you know, mental health is just the same as my leg being hurt or my arm being hurt or a physical injury. Um, one thing I am very interested to see going forward, and there are examples, right? DeMar DeRozan, Kevin Love have been outspoken advocates of that in the NBA, and it's been great to see. But the last three examples that we use, the highest profile ones, have been female athletes and female athletes in individual sports, skiing, tennis, and gymnastics. What I'm interested to see is how this translates to men's sports. And you kind of saw it with, uh, a couple weeks ago as we record this with Ben Simmons when he uh, appears to be doing better mentally now that he's in Brooklyn after being traded from the Sixers. And people you know, were publicly doubting his mental health or you know, was he just faking it or using that as a crutch to get out of Philadelphia. And it is going to be interesting for me as someone who thinks about these things to see as sports media, how do we cover men's athletes with mental health? I think it was very encouraging to see the overall response to Naomi Osaka, to Simone Biles, and they're opening up with it. And it wasn't widespread condemnation. There was a lot of as much support and even more so than any kind of condemnation of it. But it is easy to do that. I, I think that, you know, women's athletes maybe cut a little more sympathetic figure sometimes. Maybe it's harder for a male reporter to bash a young woman who's saying that she's going through uh, some problems, and especially when you have a proven athlete, right? Simone Biles can do whatever she wants. She's to go. Naomi Osaka, aside from Serena Williams, she's probably the best tennis player in the world. 
And now, you know, it's easy when you're at your best to say that. But what about the third line right winger for the Dallas Stars? Do they get the same kind of leeway? Do they get the same kind of... I'm fascinated to see where it goes. I hope they do. They absolutely should. And, you know, I think normalizing, talking about mental health in the same way that we talk about physical health. I mean, society-wide, we need to do that. I mean, that's one of the other things. You go back to school board. I mean, talking about the mental health of... High school students and ele- and middle school students and even elementary school students has to be our focal point going forward. And I think that when we talk about sticking to sports, we just can't pretend that these are athletes out there doing this thing for our amusement. You know, this isn't Gladiator. This isn't a movie. These are real people who are asking a lot of physically, mentally, and emotionally. And they're people and they have a platform. And if they choose to use it, that's great. I think we should encourage that. So last kind of topic of discussion, Brian, and it's kind of goes off of what we just finished talking about with diversity. And you've written in the past that the diversity of our journalism field is, I wouldn't say in turmoil, but it's slanted more towards the white man being this kind of overall arching kind the of control. Our field is non-existent. Let's be right. frank about this. And there's been a lot of stuff on social media and in the industry as a whole that have happened. You know, the Mina Kimes, service at Wendy's tweet. You have um, the whole Rachel Nichols and uh, Maria Taylor incident. And you have just all of these kind of spiraling issues that are happening in our field right now. So for you personally, what do you believe needs to change for diversity in our field to be more balanced? I mean, we need more of it for one thing. I mean, we need more women. We need more women of color. We need more people of color. We need more LGBTQ representation. We need more non-binary. We need more representation. I mean, that's what it comes down to. I mean, there's always going to be a segment of the sports media watching population, sports media reading population, and the sports media population themselves who kind of have those retrograde opinions about women in sports, right? And we can ignore them. It's 2022, guys. Mina Kimes knows more about football than you do. She's a better analyst. She studies the game more. She knows more about football. I don't care if you played high school. I don't care if you're Al Bundy and scored four touchdowns in one game. Mina Kimes knows more about football than you will ever know about football. Doris Burke knows more about basketball than all of your friends combined. That's not even an issue anymore. Stop it with that nonsense. Um, But I think at the end of the day, a lot of it comes down to people like us, Ben, you know, you and me, you know, straight white dudes, don't mean to assume anything, but straight white dudes, right? You know, we need to call out the sexism, the misogyny, the racism, the homophobia, all of that ourselves. And I think that, you know, that's what being an ally is. It's not about being a white knight and performative on social media. It's you see somebody saying something hurtful about somebody, you say, dude, that is not cool. Knock it off. Whether they do or not, whether they're going to listen to you or not, I'm going to call that out every time I see it. I'm going to, I have to change some wording on a lot of them, but I'm going to call out that Barstool Sports is garbage and trash because it is. It's founded on a premise that is built around misogyny and poor treatment of women and they make money off of it. And I'm not going to, I'm not here for that. I'm not going to support that. And I think that as an industry, sports media is better in the sense that there are higher profile women in parts like the Mina Kimes, like the Doris Burke, and they have their careers. They are great at them. I think we need more of them. It's not just the star system anymore where the reporters at the smaller papers or the medium papers or the medium markets have that diversity as well. So building that pipeline is kind of where it is. So it's not just the few at the top, but there's more people coming through the ranks. 
So that is going to wrap up our conversation with Brian. Brian, before I let you go, just kind of tell the listeners where they can keep track of you on social media and potentially listen to uh, your podcast that you have. If you got through this episode and still want to hear from more from me, God bless you. Anyway, I am on Twitter at BP Moritz. That's M-O-R-I-T-Z. Um, my podcast, which I'm going to be starting up again later this year, is The Other 51. That is at The Other 51 Pod. I talk to writers about writing. That's basically the nutshell on it. Um, and sportsmediaguy.com is my home on the internet. Thanks for listening to Episode 4, Part 2 of the Keep Me Covered podcast. And thanks again to Brian Moritz for coming on for this two-part episode. My name is Ben Blakely. You can follow me on Twitter at BenBlakely18. And to listen to any other episodes of the Keeping It Covered podcast, be sure to find us on Spotify. Just search Keeping It Covered.